The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Brands. It's so good to be here with you again today. We are continuing our study this morning in 2 Thessalonians. And today we're going to be looking at verses 6 and 7 of chapter 1. If you remember as we started this, Paul gives a salutation in the first two verses. And then verses 3 through 10 are one long, complicated sentence in the Greek. But the theme of this sentence is the second coming of Yeshua. Now nearly half of 2 Thessalonians deals with the problems and issues regarding the second coming of Christ. Now, in last Friday's podcast, Gary DeMar <clears throat> made a statement, and he's answering questions in these podcasts because, you know, we got this group of superior Pharisees who wrote him a letter, open letter, and demanded that they answer his questions. So Gary's answering, responding to these questions. But he made the statement that the term second coming is not in the Bible. And that's true. But Hebrews 9, 28 says this, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. He came the first time in the Incarnation. He came the second time in AD 70. It doesn't say the second coming, but He he will appear, the writer of Hebrews says, a second time. So I think it's okay to say second coming. I think that would be, you know, appropriate. And that's why we call it the second coming. He came one time, he came a second time. All right, most people are still waiting for that second time, but anyway, uh, we're not waiting for it. Now, we need to understand something before we even get into this text. We need to understand, it needs to be clear in our mind, that these believers in Thessalonica were suffering for their faith. We talked about, Stan talked about North Korea this morning and the people that are suffering there. These Thessalonians are going through it. Verses 4 and 5 says, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in your persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. So these, <clears throat> these Thessalonians, they're going through persecution. They're going through affliction. They are suffering. Now remember what we said a couple weeks ago. They were suffering, and, they, and Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians, they were suffering just like the saints in Judea were suffering for their faith. He says this in 1 Thessalonians 2.14, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Yeshua that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen, as they did from the Jews. So, how were the believers, how were the disciples in Judea suffering? Well, they were being beaten for their faith. Some of them were martyred. John the Baptist was martyred. Stephen was martyred. James was martyred. Notice what Luke writes in Acts chapter 5, verse 40 and 42. And when they had called the apostles, they beat them. And they charged them not to speak in the name of Yeshua. And they let them go. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Is that a textual problem? Sounds like it, doesn't it? I mean, they got beat and they leave rejoicing. 
I mean, if this was written about us today, it'd probably say they left grumbling and complaining, God, why'd you let this happen to us? We're trying to serve you. We're preaching the gospel like you told us. Why would you ever let this happen to us? This is not their attitude, okay? They're rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they didn't cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Yeshua. This is the first instance of the apostles receiving physically abuse that Luke records in Acts. The word beat here is darrow in the Greek, and according to Strong's, it means to flay. You know what flay means? You flay fish, okay? To flay. By implication, to scourge, by analogy, to thrash, to beat, to smite. That's Strong's definition. Thayer says it means to flay or to skin. So I think we get the idea this beating is not a little thing. It was a horrible thing. These men would have, you know, had their clothes taken off and tied to a post and beaten until they were bloody. Now, the number of stripes was determined by what was they thought was just, but it couldn't go over 40, so they always stopped at 39 in case they counted wrong and missed one. All right? But if you can imagine being whipped 39 times with leather thongs, and they would, they would tie bone and pieces of rock into the thongs, so when it hit you, it would just tear the skin apart. That's why it has the idea of fillet. It was a horrible form of persecution. But they're, they're, I mean, it's hard for us to even imagine this. But in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes this, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. Five times. He's a slow learner. I mean, not a quit after one. All right, I'm done. I'm not doing this anymore, okay? Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. They would take a bundle of rods and usually had a sword in the middle. So when they hit you, the rods would separate, the sword would cut you. Once I was stoned, and he's not talking about marijuana here, okay? These actual literal rocks were thrown at him. Three times I was shipwrecked. The night and the day I spent in the deep. So Paul's been through it. But notice who it is that's doing the persecuting, persecution here. He says, at the hands of the Jews. All right, It was the Jews that hated and persecuted the Christians. And these believers in Thessalonica were suffering greatly at the hands of the Jews in Thessalonica. And so it's to this suffering group that Paul writes, verse 6 and 7, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels. Let's go over some basics here. Who is Paul writing to? All right, believers, let's narrow it down more. Believers where? In Thessalonica, when? The first century, right? Okay, we all clear on that? Writing to the church that's at Thessalonica. They're there. It's a real church. In verse 1, he says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. And he tells them that God is going to repay with affliction those who afflict who? Any believer? All believers? No, he doesn't say that. He says those who afflict you. It's a personal letter. They're reading it. God is going to repay those who afflict you. And and he says that he's going to grant relief to you. 
So he's telling the first century church in Thessalonica, the believers there, that they are going to receive relief from their suffering when? When they die? When does he say? When the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. At the second coming, which he here he calls the revelation, they're going to get relief. So, if the Lord has not yet returned, 2,000 years later, as most of the church believes, what does this text mean to the Thessalonians? Nothing. Nada. Zip. Nothing at all. It actually would have been deceptive because the only relief they're going to get would come at death since the second coming is still in our future, according to most people. So this is kind of dumb. I just, it blows my mind that people can read texts like this and say, this is talking about the future. Here's, here's my question here to all non-prets. Can you show me something in this letter, or any letter as a matter of fact, from any of the New Testament writers, that they switch their intended audience from people of the first century to people thousands of years in the future? Where's that switch? See, some texts we read and he talks about the Lord coming soon, but there's some texts that say the Lord's coming in a long time, right? No, there's no text like that, okay? There's no text. There's no soon and later coming. It's all soon. There's only one coming. One second coming. There's not a third coming. Now Richard Mayhew in his commentary on 2 Thessalonians writes this. I love this. These truths will be particularly true. I'm not sure what that means. They're, they're kind of true, but they'll really be true for those who are alive at Christ's second coming and more universally true, even be truer, at the end of the millennium. Now listen, I would agree with this if he was writing prior to AD 70. I would say, yep, at the second coming, it's going to be true, and it's going to be true at the end of the millennium, which is at the 70 AD. Okay, I'd go along with that. But he's writing today, and he says this. These truths, so again, I ask you, so if he's saying that, what does it mean to the Thessalonians? Nothing. It is cruel. What hermeneutical principle does this violate? Huh? All of them. <laughs> Audience relevance, right? I mean, we seem to ignore that principle. Most people ignore that because most people read the Bible and they read it like it's a newspaper. I remember when I first became a Christian, I'm reading and it's like, the Lord's coming soon. Yay! Never thought for a minute he wrote that 2,000 years ago to somebody else. Didn't understand hermeneutics then, all right? But her, audience relevance seeks to discover what the original readers, the original recipients of a letter, understood a passage to mean. And the concern of the interpreters to understand the grammar of a passage in light of the historical circumstances and the context of the original audience. So are we to believe that Paul wrote this to the first century believers in Thessalonica who were suffering, but it had absolutely no meaning to them? That would never fly with thinking people. But see, the problem today is most people don't think. They just don't think. Especially when it comes to the Bible. Mayhu goes on to say, 
Paul's not speaking of peace and ease in this life, but in eternity. Okay, so don't worry, folks. When you get to heaven, everything will be good. All right? Which is the rest, which it is the rest, but watch, but with a different Greek word. It's a different kind of rest. This is spoken of by the writer of Hebrews. In other words, those who lived with unrest, tribulation, and persecution, for Christ's sake, in this life, will have eternal rest with Christ forever. So basically he's saying their rest would come at death. The problem with that is that, that is not what Paul says. That is not what the text says. He said the rest would come at the revelation of Yeshua the Christ. He doesn't say, don't worry guys, when you die, things will get better. David Guzik in his commentary in 2 Thessalonians write this, the, second, the, the Thessalonian Christians were persecuted and had tribulation, and God used it for His glory. But the time of persecution would not last. A day of rest is promised for every believer. Oh, good! So this doesn't really, that's not just for them, it's for everybody. Throughout time, don't worry. <laughs> Again, what does it mean to them? They don't, they don't even stop. They don't hesitate here. It doesn't seem to bother anybody. Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> Someday you'll be dead and the suffering won't, will end. Stephen J. Cole writes this, The point is, unless Jesus and the apostles were lying or mistaken, He is coming. That's the point. He's coming. Sometime, don't worry, it's thousands of years off. Mockers will say, where is the promise of His coming? But they will be shocked and terrified when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in power and glory. Listen, the point is not He is coming. The point He is coming soon to relieve your suffering. That's the point. Not just some general someday, sometime, whenever He's coming. Chuck Smith says this, Paul is going to talk here in a little bit about a period of time that is coming in which God is going to judge the world. There is going to be a time of tremendous tribulation that is going to come to pass upon the earth. I believe... It isn't far off. Hmm. Chuck, you're saying this? This is locally? This is, re- I mean, not long ago, okay, he writes this? I believe it's not far off. This period of great tribulation is described in detail in the book of Revelation. So, they're suffering, but the tribulation is not even there yet. It's still far off, so they're going to get worse suffering. He doesn't even deal with the fact he's talking to them about relief. So the suffering, he says, the second Thessalonians are receiving is a long way off because he writes 2,000 years later and he says it's getting closer. How does that help them? I love what he says. He said, this period of great tribulation is described in detail in the book of Revelation. It is. And people go to Revelation and they're like, this is a great... And I always want to stop and ask him, wait, stop, stop, stop. Who is Revelation written to? Me. No, no, it says who it's written. Who's it written to? The seven churches that are in Asia Minor, literal, physical churches, seven, he names each one of them, has a little bit of a letter for each one of them, seven churches. And here's what he tells those churches, okay? Revelations when, okay? Verse 1, he's telling them about things that must soon take place. 
Now, people have tried to deal with these time statements by twisting them, distorting them, doing everything they can to them because they don't like them. He says in verse 3, the time is near. All right, so he starts out in the first three verses. The stuff soon, the time is near. He gets to the very last chapter. And he says in verse, 20, in verse 6, must soon take place. He says in verse 7, I am coming soon. He says in verse 5, the, I mean verse 10, the time is near. He says in verse 12, I'm coming soon. He says in verse 20, I'm coming soon. Seven times he talks about, now he talks more in the book, but I'm just talking the bracket here. From the very beginning to the very end of the book, the book is bracketed in time statements, and there are seven of them. Seven, <clears throat> excuse me, seven being the number of perfection, fullness, completion. How do we go into the book of Revelation and ignore all these time statements and say, yes, this is about us, this stuff's going to happen, the beast is, you know, and how many different beasts have they come up with throughout the years? Whoever you don't like at the time is the beast. Gorbachev was the beast, remember that? Uh, all these different beasts. The Pope, I mean, Pick, pick one. Anybody you don't like can be the beast of Revelation. Mm. It's just, it's absolutely crazy, okay? Because we just miss the simple things. <clears throat> it was written to seven churches. It says that in the chapter. It names the churches. So how are you looking for these things now? When he told them it would be soon. On the recently launched website called unorthodox eschatology, which is put up by the same Pharisees that sent the letter to Gary DeMar, okay? So they, they sent Gary this letter demanding you answer these questions because we know some stuff, okay? <clears throat> yeah, and so then they put up this website, and here's, it's called unorthodox eschatology. It says this, we hereby, and it's signed by a couple hundred Guys, we hereby adopt the following position concerning the unorthodox eschatological doctrine of full preterism. Hyperpreterism or any other eschatological system promoting any or all of the following errors which are contrary to the Holy Scriptures, historic creeds, and confessions. All right? Now, I'm just going to jump to number four here because this is what I want to focus on. The second coming, now see, these are things they deny. Okay, the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ is already past and fulfilled AD 70. Therefore, denying a physical, visible return of Christ at the end of history. But what is really comical here is their second text of proof is 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10. This is a proof of what they're denying. So, if this text refers to a physical, visible return of Christ at the end of history, what did it mean to the Thessalonians? Nothing. How did they come up with this nonsense? How did they do that? You read this text, you people are suffering. Hang on, there's going to come a relief when the Lord returns, but you'll be dead and gone before it ever happens. And then you got one of the signers, this Andrew Sandlin one of the head Pharisees, he says, if you believe in full preterism, you are not a Christian. You're not a Christian. Now, here's the thing. That sounds to me like he's adding to the Bible, adding to the gospel, because when I read the Bible, the gospel is believe on the Lord Yeshua, the Christ, 
and you will be saved. And we have a subnote there. It's not there. It's not even in the Greek, but it must be there somewhere because they come up with it. And make sure your eschatology is correct. So for anybody to be a Christian now, they have to have a correct eschatology. I wonder if dispensationalists are saved. Or is it just Sandlin's eschatology that saves people? Any other eschatology damns people. How do we get so far off track? When you don't like somebody, you don't like what they... And you can't fight it with the Scriptures, so you use the creeds. The creeds disagree. I don't care. Let's go to the Bible. That, I hold that way above the creeds, okay? It's the Word of God. The creeds are the Word of men. But these Pharisees come out and attack Damar. You know why they're attacking Damar? It's not because Damar said, I'm a full preterist now. That's not why they're attacking him. He's asking questions. What does this text mean? What's this text saying? Don't you dare ask questions about the Bible, they're telling him. You shut up. You stop thinking about that. We'll tell you what it, believe, you know, what it means. The, the, again, they're just Pharisees. The they're, yeah, they're just... Well, yeah, they're, they're just, you know, you don't go along with us, we'll shut you down. You know, well, you're not allowed to speak on that anymore. I mean, you're not, when are you not allowed to ask questions in the church? How have we gotten to a point where they know what's right, and they're going to condemn anybody else that dares question what they say? <sighs> yes. Mm-mm-mm. Yes, amen. Amen. Believers, as far as I understand it, and if I'm wrong, please show me, uh, eschatology is not involved in the gospel at all. Your eschatology can be totally whack, and you still can get saved, <laughs> okay? Because it's faith in Christ and what Christ's work, what Christ did for you that saves us, not our eschatology. And let me just add here that there's no scripture that explicitly teaches that Yeshua would return in a physical, bodily fashion. Well, they want to run to Acts chapter 1. You know, it's, it's silly that these people don't even know their Bibles better than this, okay? Cloud comings are not physical, visible, okay? There's so many texts, you know, they, they, you gotta, he's got to come in a physical, bodily fashion or, or it doesn't count. But there's so many texts that tell us, there's no texts that say that, but there's a lot of texts that tell us he's coming soon, quickly, shortly, to some of you standing here, to this generation, but they won't ignore those texts, okay? Let's focus on, we want a physical coming here. An understanding of the language of Scripture, I think, will help us see that his coming was not to be physical. It was a coming in judgment in Old Covenant Israel to shut down that covenant forever and always. The judgment was physical. Presence was not. Now our text in 2 Thessalonians 1-6 through clearly tells us that Paul and the Thessalonians, they expected the return of Christ to happen in their lifetime. The parousia could not give them relief and punish those who were afflicting them if it didn't happen in their lifetime. And this is consistent with everything we saw in the first letter. Let's review some of this. 1 Thessalonians 1-10. And to wait for his son from heaven. All right, this is the first Thessalonians. Again, they're waiting. 
This is clearly a reference to the second coming at the end of the age. And not too many people want to argue with that question. So the Thessalonians are waiting for Yeshua to come from heaven at his second coming. Why? Why were they waiting for him? Well, if the Lord has not returned yet, as the majority of the church believes, over 2,000 years later, why would they be waiting in the first century? I mean, are you going to sit around and wait for something that you know is never going to happen? Let's talk about the word wait. This is the Greek word anameno. It's found only here in the New Testament. But it occurs four times in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Anameno is from ana, which means upon. And Vine says it intensifies the meaning of mano, which means abide or remain. So it conveys the meaning of expectant waiting. Sustained, patient, trusting waiting. It pictures an eager looking forward to the coming of one whose arrival is anticipated at any time. It's expecting this coming. BDAG in their lexicon says it means to wait for, expect someone or something. Now, you're really not going to wait for something that you didn't expect to happen. The complete biblical library, Greek-English dictionary, Gilbrandt states that in the classical Greek, anameno means waiting or staying in wait. The word carries a sense of anticipation of an appending event. One such example is the use of anameno in describing an army waiting for the enemy to attack. That's a good illustration of anameno. It good, helps us understand they're waiting for an enemy to attack. You better be ready. You better be watching. That's what the Thessalonians are doing, okay? I think that the fact that the first century believers in Thessalonica were waiting for Christ's coming from heaven tells us that they expected to see it in their lifetime. So, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. Why would you look with eager anticipation of something that you're not going to see? Now, other verses in this letter imply that they expected the coming in their lifetime. And chapter 4, verse 15, he says, For this we declare to you by the word from the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming. So we who are alive, we're remaining. Now, do you remember when I said this letter was written? Okay, can we narrow it down a little more? Yeah, that's right. This was written around 5051. 50-51. So the eminent coming of the Lord was 19 to 20 years away from them still. And during this time, some of them are going to die, okay? But some would still be alive, and that's what he's saying. We who are alive, those of us who remain until that time. Now granted, 20 years sounds like a long time to wait, doesn't it? Unless you're looking at over 2,000 years. Then that doesn't, 20 years doesn't seem so long anymore, right? I mean, 20 years is a long time for me. I don't even reckon I have that much time left, but, you know, two years is a long time for me. I've been waiting for Trump to come back for two years. It seems like forever, okay? I'm still waiting. I hope it's not 20. (laughs) In chapter 417, he says, then we who are alive, who are left. We're going to be around when this happens. We're going to be caught up together with them. 
5, 4, he says, but you are not in darkness, brothers, that that day should surprise you. So the first century Thessalonian believers looked for the second coming in their lifetime. They expected to see it. Why? Where did they get that idea from? Are they off base somewhere? No, they, they must have been taught this by Paul and Timothy and Silas, who most likely got it from the Lord. Because Yeshua taught that his parousia would happen in that generation, within a 40-year period. He taught that some of the disciples would still be alive. So Paul taught the Thessalonians that some of them would live to see it. It's only 20 years away. Some of them are going to be alive. In his book, now, I really think the heart of preterism is the time statements, okay? I think you have to, you know, there's over 100 of them. That's a lot of time statements. Almost every text that talks about the coming has a time statement. Almost every one of them. So if you're going to deal with preterism, you're going to do away with it. You've got to destroy the time statement somehow, okay? You've got to just get rid of them. Well, in his book, The Apocalypse Code, Hank Hanegraaff, you know who Hanegraaff is? The Bible answer man, okay? He'll give you the answers. They won't be the right ones, but he'll give you answers, okay? Hank Hanegraaff says this. Preterists present their interpretation of this generation, he's talking about Matthew 24, 34, and the Olivet Discourse as an unassailable apex to their system. No, it's only one of hundred, okay? Only one of a hundred. However, their interpretation, the most compelling given the usage and context of the term in Matthew, is their interpretation the most compelling? He says, I don't think so. The typical futurist interpretation is that the verse refers to a future generation or time frame. The typical preterist interpretation is that this verse refers to the past generation or time frame. A problem presents itself in that both of these interpretations fail to adequately account for several important interpretive factors. Now, he's going to give us some interpretive factors here. In the Gospel of Matthew, the phrase, this generation, is primarily used in a pejorative sense towards a people group. Hmm, that's interesting interpretation there, because, you know, generation means it's a time period, it's a group of people, it's a, you know, so, but he's saying, this generation... Well, the generation he was speaking to was evil, but when he said that, he said, this evil, an adulterous generation. So yes, it was an evil generation, but generation doesn't tell us that, okay? Israelites, he says, who rejected him. To view this as a time frame reference, 40 or 80 years, goes against the usage of the term in Matthew. It's just, he's talking nonsense here, people. This term isn't used in the quantitative manner, years on the earth, rather is used in a qualitative manner, okay? So he's saying, well, you can't, no, it's nothing about time. Generation has nothing to do with time, all right? He says, describing people with certain spiritual qualities. If the view of this term as descriptive of those in ethnic Israel who reject Messiah, which has continued since the first century, not only are we within the bounds of the usage of this generation in Matthew, but this interpretation also fits best with both the immediate context and the whole of Scripture. It doesn't fit with anything, Hank, okay? He says it's used in a qualitative manner, describing people with certain qualities. That's not true. 
The Greek word used here for generation is genea. And according to Strong's, genea means a generation. By implication, an age, the period or the person's age, generation, nation, time. He wants to do away with time. Generation doesn't mean anything to do with time. He's talking about you evil people. He was talking to evil people, but he's talking to those evil people, okay? And please notice that Yeshua said, I say to you, this generation. And please understand here, <clears throat> Hank, Hank, this is for you if you're listening. Pay attention. I want to teach you something here about the near demonstrative. This, every time this is used, in the New Testament, it refers to something that's near in terms of time or distance. And Yeshua didn't say that generation. You know, that one on the He didn't say some generation. He's talking to people and he says, this generation, this time period, this group of people, you're not going to pass away till all these things are fulfilled. Uh, this is just common sense, okay? You say to a group of people, this people won't pass away until this happens, okay? But if I said that group of people, you, well, it's somebody else. This is us, that's somebody else. But see, they're so desperate to twist this around, they've got to deal with the time statements. So that's what they're going to do. That's good job, Hank. <clears throat> If you look at the way Yeshua used the word generation, I think it's abundantly clear that it always refers to his contemporaries. That's how he's using it. The Jewish people of his own period. All right, back to 1 Thessalonians 10. Paul says this, he says, Yeshua delivers us from the wrath to come. So we're waiting for him, and he's going to deliver us from wrath. What wrath is this? Well, this is the wrath that Yeshua predicted would come upon Jerusalem and all who rejected him. Who is the us here? It's the Thessalonians, right? It's, you know, well, some generation in our future. Yeshua will deliver them. I wonder why the Lord used all the wrong words when he wrote the Bible. You know? Man, it's just crazy. It is Paul and the Thessalonians, and if they're going to be delivered from wrath, Guess what? They had to be around when it happens, right? What wrath is it that Yeshua was delivering the Thessalonians from? Now, we'll get into great detail next week on what this wrath exactly is. But I think we see the answer in chapter 5. In verse 9, he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through the Lord Yeshua the Christ. And if you back up in the chapter, we see in the context, in verse 1, he says, The wrath he's talking about is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is the return of Christ to judge apostate Jerusalem and to consummate the new covenant. In chapter 3, of the, verse 13 of the first book, he says, So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God and our Father at the coming of the Lord Yeshua. Okay, he's going to establish your hearts. That's the Thessalonians. He says in chapter 1, he says in chapter 2, he says in chapter 3. The only weird thing is in chapter 2, verse 19, he talks about the coming. He doesn't give a time reference. That's unusual. But in 13, he gives us a time reference. He's going to establish your hearts. So 
That's the Thessalonians, all right? He clearly indicates that they would see the second coming. Now, just in case, you know, Paul's writing to them, and I've talked about it three times, but if that's not enough for you, you know, let's go on to chapter 4, and let me hit it some more, okay? 4.15, For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and are left to the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Again, the coming here, parousia. Notice that it's we who are alive. It's you. It's a clear enough time statement, people. Paul taught that he and many of the Thessalonian believers were going to be alive when the Lord returned at the parousia because they knew it was close. All right? Now, the view that the church holds on the parousia today is at odds with Paul's teaching. It's at odds with Peter. <laughs> it's, it's just at odds with the Bible, okay? So here's the question we have to ask. Who got it wrong? Was it the New Testament writers? Or was it Paul or the majority of the church? Which one got it wrong? You know, the church at large is still waiting 2,000 years later since it was prophesied. And I think anybody with a little common sense when they're reading the Bible, they're going to have a problem saying, well, the Lord keeps saying soon and quickly and all they're saying that, and yet He didn't come. But it doesn't seem to bother people. Mike's, I talked to Mike Sullivan last week. He told me a story about a coworker that it's just, he put this on Facebook, but it's, it's funny. His coworker said he believes in reincarnation. So he says, wow, how'd you get that view? He goes, well, in reading the Bible, it's very clear that the Lord's coming back soon. And he's coming back in the first century. And so he said, the only way I can figure to deal with that is reincarnation. And I'm not even sure how that works out. But here's my point is, he saw that it was to happen soon. It was to happen to them. So maybe they had to be reincarnated when he does it in the future. They're there. I guess maybe that's how he worked it out, okay? So God, all the people of the first century get reincarnated in the whenever century he does come back. We still don't know. Because it's still a ways off. The church is still waiting. But So we have to decide who's right here, people. Are the church and are these, you know... Are these Pharisees who are telling us you have to believe what they believe and you have to look for it in the future and it has to be physical and it has to, you know, it's going to destroy the whole earth and all these things? Or can we just believe the Bible? In 523, again, Paul's hammering this over and over in 1 Thessalonians. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Yeshua the Christ. So he prays that the Thessalonians will be blameless at the coming. The word coming here, parousia. This has been the theological focus of this entire book. This is the sixth time in this letter that he mentions the coming of the Lord. And the expression, at the coming of the Lord Yeshua, should not be understood until his coming, as the King James translates it. The focus here is on the first century. The Thessalonian believers' spiritual state at the time of the second coming. Keep you completely. Keep you sanctified. That's He's talking about them. This is going to happen while they're still alive. The return of Yeshua is mentioned in every one of the New Testament books except for Galatians, where it's alluded to, and the very short books of 2nd and 3rd John and Philemon. When I first came to see this, 
preterism, understanding the Lord came back in the first century. I called Don and I talked to Don, Don Preston, because I'm like, okay, I have a problem because I teach through the Bible verse by verse. So what books can I teach that don't talk about this? <laughs> and Don just laughed at me. He said, you're really slim there, okay? If you're gonna, and it's not going to last very long if you just want to ignore it, okay? I'm like, okay, what do I do? You know, I can't not teach on it. And it was weird because I was teaching through 1 Corinthians and I was in chapter 14 when I came to see this. So I said, stop, time out. I don't, 15 is not what I think it means anymore. And so, and I've never gone back there yet. So one day we're going to revisit that and, and finish that book. But um, no, it, it's just, it's talked about everywhere, people. It's a major theme in the New Testament. As you study this theme of the return of Christ, you're going to find that the first century church, they expect it in their lifetime. Because the Lord taught them. The apostles taught them that. They taught a first century parousia. So did all the New Testament authors. So why does the majority of churchianity today reject that coming? Why can't they see this? Well, I think one of the major reasons, first of all, is too many people don't even know their Bible. because They don't even know what they believe or how they believe it. They, someone told them, so they're sticking to that. Okay, That's it. But too many people are looking for a physical coming. He's got to come and rear, burn up the planet, start all over, everything's going to be new. You know, that's the same problem the Jews had in the first century. They were looking for a physical deliverer. They wanted to be free from Rome. They wanted a warrior to set them free. So when Christ came and said, I came to set you free from your sins, oh, no, no, we're not interested in that. We want to be set free from Rome. So they rejected Christ the first time, and now the church rejects His second coming for the same reason. We want a physical deliverer to set us free from this horrible planet we live on. And by the way, planet does not mean globe. Just so you understand that, okay? This flat earth plane that God created that we live on. All right. All right. With that as an introduction, let's look at the text this morning, okay? Let's dig into this. All right. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. This is an implied first class conditional sentence, which is assumed to be true. God's judgment is just. And then he says he's going to repay. This is the Greek word antapodidomi, which Thayer says means in a good sense to repay, to requite, in a bad sense, penalty, vengeance. We see antapodidomi used in Romans 12.19. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. All right? Now, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, is a quote from Deuteronomy 32.35, which deals with the Lord giving vengeance. The writer of Hebrews also quotes this. Hebrews 10.30, he says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. The Lord is going to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Now, He's trying to stress here, listen, God is a God of vengeance. These people are tormenting you. These people are persecuting you. These people are beating you. God will deal with them. Trust Him. It's not, you to, it's not your job to do it. God will deal with them. And the Greek here, the text suggests that it is just in God's sight. It's the kion parotheo. 
God is just. It's just in His sight to give them affliction. Now, thlipsis here, our first word affliction is thlipsis. It's a noun, and it means anguish, burden, persecution, tribulation. And then thlebo is the second afflict here. It's a verb, and it means to afflict, to suffer tribulation, to trouble. So, some have observed that both references here, to trouble, to affliction in our text, are from the same Greek word, well, it's thlebo and thlipsis. It's a participle followed by a noun. But that reflects the Tanakh notion of lex talionis. Is an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. In other words, God is going to repay. And that's the point of this, is to underscore the certainty that persecutors are going to be paid back at the judgment day. God is a God of vengeance. We see that in Isaiah 66, 15 and 16. For behold, Yahweh will come in fire. His chariot's like a whirlwind to render His anger in fury and His rebuke with flames of fire For by fire will Yahweh enter into judgment, and by His sword will all flesh, and those slain by Yahweh shall be many. So Yahweh is the avenger here, and this is talking about AD 70. This is talking about the judgment on Jerusalem. The Lord is going to bring vengeance on the sinners, those who reject Him, those who reject His word. Matthew put it like this in Matthew 3, His winnowing fork is in His hand. And he'll clear the threshing floor and gather the wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So God was shown to be righteous. And when those who persecuted the Thessalonians were repaid with tribulation, God, they would, it would be clear to them, God is dealing with them, God is judging them, He is demonstrating who the sons of God are. Now the emphasis on the vengeance of God is calculated here to encourage the Thessalonians. All right, in the face of this adversity, supplying them with an eschatological perspective that will enable them to endure in their present situation. God, God's going to deal with them. That's always encouraging. And that's what's so discouraging in our world. There is no justice. Our justice system is a mess, okay? A mess. You know that guy that walked in the Capitol building? The QAnon, whoever, shaman, they call him, I guess. He had the little hat on and all dressed up in war paint. The videos are out now that show the Capitol Police escorting him through. They escorted him. No violence. He didn't have any weapons. He didn't do anything. He got four years in prison for walking, being escorted through the Capitol by the police. People, this stuff is hitting the fan now, okay, because the truth's starting to come out. But our justice system is an absolute message, totally upside down. But, but here's the thing. God is just, okay? Keep that in mind. God is just. Now, the word relief here is from the Greek word onisis, and it means relaxation, relief, ease, liberty, rest. In the New Testament, it commonly denotes relief from some type of affliction. So who's the promise of this relief given to? You who are afflicted, which is the first century Thessalonians. So Paul says God is going to repay with affliction those who afflict you and give you that are afflicted rest. And then he says, as well as us. Who's that? Well, that's Paul and the apostles. God's going to give us rest as well. Because it's clear that the apostolic circle was also suffering persecution. We just looked at some of Paul's 
You know, five times he was beaten. Do you think the believers in Thessalonica, when this letter was read to them, do you think they saw this as good news? Do you think this gave them hope in the midst of the suffering? Relief is coming. Justice is coming. It doesn't look like it now, but it is coming. Not right away, but it's coming. Do you think when Paul was was somehow giving them false hope? You guys are, I know you're going through a hard time. Let me make you feel better, although it's not even true, but it'll make you feel better. And I've heard that from people. Well, God told them that because he wanted every generation waiting for him. Okay, so he knew none of them were really waiting for them, but he just gave them false hope. Well, people will do a lot of things to make the Bible say what it doesn't say, all right? When will the unbelievers receive judgment and the believers get their rest? When the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven. Literally, this is at the revelation of the Lord Yeshua. Now, in other texts in these letters, it speaks of the coming of the Lord. It's used the word parousia. But here, it's not parousia, it's revelation. This is apocalypsis. And it means clearly revealed. This refers to the second coming of Yeshua. Paul uses the same word in 1 Corinthians 1, 7 and 8, he says, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of the Lord Yeshua the Christ who shall sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of the Lord Yeshua the Christ. That's the unveiling. This is the second coming. And this is what John says in Revelation. Behold, I'm coming soon. Watch. Bringing my recompense with me to repay each one. That's what our text says. He's, he's going to repay people for what they've done. He's going to repay them when he returns at the second coming. So Paul then describes the apocalypse by three prepositional phrases. He says the coming of Yeshua is described as from heaven with his mighty angels and in flaming fire. He's coming from heaven. I think this doesn't merely indicate origin, but stresses authority. He's coming from the dwelling place of God to execute the judgment of God. And I also think the idea of a disclosure of one's presence from an invisible dimension, instead of a directional movement from a geographical location, is apparent from considering Paul's other uses of revelation to describe Yeshua's appearance. You're going to be, it's going to be clear who's doing this, all right? And then he talks about, he's coming from heaven with his mighty angels. This is angelon dunamus ato. And the pronoun his modifies power, not angels. It is not his mighty angels, technically. It is the angels of his power. And a number of texts describe how these beings are going to accompany the Lord when he comes back. He's coming with an angelic army. Mark 13, 27. And then he will send out his angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So he's coming. Angels are coming with him. A heavenly army. Matthew 25, 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Jude says this in 1.14. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones this come is a judgment coming and christ is not coming alone literally here it is in or among his holy myriads 
the preposition with or among presents the Lord coming as surrounded by a vast army of court attendants. The word in the Greek, hagios, refers to holy ones. And here it's a reference to angels, not believers. Christ's second coming was accompanied by angels. Matthew 16, 27, we're all familiar with this verse. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels. That's who He's coming with. He's coming in the glory of His Father. And look what He's going to do. He's going to repay each person according to what He's done. So He comes with His angels, and the idea is repeated over and over. He's coming with angels, and He's coming to repay. Justice was coming for those first century saints. Then He says He's coming in flaming fire. Now there's some confusion here whether this phrase goes with verse 7 or verse 8. The New American Standard puts it in verse 7. They tack it on the end of 7. As you can see here, the ESV puts it in 8. If it goes with 7, it relates to the angels. If it goes with 8, it relates to judgment. I think it's better to put it with verse 8, and it's referring to the judgment that is coming. All right, The judgment is a fiery judgment. We already saw that in Isaiah 66. He's coming in fire, flames of fire, by fire, Yahweh is going to enter into judgment. This is a fiery coming Listen, people, he burned Jerusalem to the ground, okay? They burned it to the ground. And this is how Peter describes the day of the Lord at the second coming in 2 Peter 3.10. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works on it will be exposed. So Paul is telling the suffering first century believers at Thessalonica, God's going to give you relief from suffering when He returns at the second coming. This would have encouraged them, this would have given them hope in the Lord, you know, that He's coming back in our lifetime. We just got to hang on. And some people were dying and they're starting to to question, what happened? He goes, that's okay. Some are going to die. They were not going to miss it. He'll bring them also. But this would have meant nothing to them In fact, it would have been deceptive and cruel if the second coming was thousands of years in the future. I don't see God as doing trying to trick people, twist people's eyes to this. All right. So this is our text, people. This is so clear. And yet this is a proof text to these Pharisees that the future coming of the Lord, this is their proof text. All right. For God indeed considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as us when the Lord Yeshua is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire. This text is so clear. It doesn't indicate a a future coming to us. It's talking about a first century coming of the Lord in judgment. And listen, if this is not talking about a first century coming in judgment, then words don't have meaning. I mean, really, words have no meaning at all. Because what, well, he's talking to them, and he writes to them, you, you, and us, and this is going to happen, and, but none of it did. It's still future to us. That's the Bible they want you to hang on to. The one that, you know, is so deceptive. It was the first century Thessalonians that were to receive relief, and they did. At AD 70, God shut that whole Jewish system down. The Jewish persecution stopped because most of the Jews got wiped out. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for this text. 
Lord, I just pray you'd help us, Father, to, to focus on the text and to use our common sense to do some research into the actual words that you used and put into this text for a meaning, for a purpose. And then we would understand that we're reading somebody else's mail, Lord, and it had to apply to them. It had to make sense to them. And then, Lord, may we take it and apply it to us. But, Father, the, the, the instruction and the guidance that's given to the church help us apply in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Thank you for your patience with us, Lord. Thank you, Father, that we are saved by your grace and not by having a correct eschatology. Amen. Questions? Comments? Gary? Um, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So, is that uh, for those people, not for us? <laughs> <laughs> and yes, it is for those people, but yes, it is for us. That is a universal principle. He told this to the church over and over. That is a principle that vengeance belongs to God. That we as believers are not to take vengeance. Okay? We're to leave room for wrath, even in our day. You know, believe me, I would like to take vengeance. Okay? That's just my nature. I'm, I want to fight back. Okay? When I see a plane fly over with chemtrails, I want to pull out a handheld rocket launcher and take it out of the sky. You know, I'm like, no, you don't. You're not poisoning me. I want to fight back. Okay? But if I do that, then the government will know I have a handheld rocket launcher. And I don't want to know. <laughs> so I'm not going to do it. What is he repaying? Is it spiritual persecution or is it political persecution? Well, I think he's repaying. He's, it's justice. Okay? God is going to be just. And if you are persecuting, you are unjust, living in this world, God will, he's going to straighten that out. He's a God of justice. And he is just. And he's going to repay those. Again, a lot of these references are specifically to AD 70. Because they're dealing with people who are suffering at the hands of the Jews. And don't worry. I'm going to take care of that. In 20 okay? years. In 20 years. Well, I know. That sounds like a long time. But again, the option is that or over 2,000. <laughs> At least they're alive to see it in 20 years instead of dust, you know. Well, the, uh, I remember the judge, uh, king of Israel, I can't remember his name, of Judah, who ruled for 45 years and he was a wicked king. So we, uh, we're better off than that. Yeah, we're better off. We got a lot of wicked kings, okay? A lot of wicked Government's wicked, okay? But again, I think, you know, I believe in God's justice, and I believe, you know, justice, we might not see it in our lifetime. You know, we might live in a totally unjust world, but that's just, you know, that's how it is. All right? That's the way he wants it. And people talk about, you know, the slavery we've been under from the Federal Bank, you know, Federal Reserve, and, and it is. It's a slavery. It's a bondage. But, you know, in the midst of all that, you know, I've lived for almost 70 years and I've had a great life. So, yes, it's terrible, but would it be better? Could it be better? Absolutely. All right? Get rid of that federal bank. Shut it down. Get rid of the IRS, you know? Well, yeah, 98. Pretty good. I mean, we just don't need it, you know? It's like Twitter. You know, Elon gets there and fires, you know, 90% of the employees and the thing's just running fine. <laughs> Government's the same way, right? Yep. All right, uh, 
Uh, this is from Gary and Chris in PA. Thank you, Dave. I give glory and praise to the Lord for being able to attend every week. What happened to those who were alive? I always thought that they were left to remain until the time of physical death came and, God's, and God would fulfill His covenant promise and they would go in the same like manner as those who were asleep and would be with their brethren just like we would expect to experience in that time. Also, please pray for me. I'm having surgery Tuesday, March 14th. Thank you, Gary in Pennsylvania. My other half, Chris, is at the flower show today. Uh, Then he says, P.S. Love you, Brother Don Preston. We became friends a couple years ago. All right, what happened to those who are alive? The the living Krishna, again, preterists have a difference of opinion here. Go figure, okay? I mean, you got Ed teaching that they got raptured, all right? They got sucked off the planet. That left nobody, okay? I just have a hard time with that. I really do. I, I think the change that took place was spiritually. We put on immortality. We were, boom, we were given life. And now you got all these people here to express and share the gospel. All the Christians got, then we had a, just a vacuum. There's no Christians left. Then what? I don't know. I, I, that view doesn't fit with me. That's okay, though. You know, um, That's how some people see it. They got taken off. I think people stayed, believers stayed. They went on with life. They knew something had happened, but now we have immortality. That's 1 Corinthians 15. We put on immortality. Tyrone. Makes a good argument, but then I think about when Christ tells him, "When you see these things happening, flee to the mountains," and if he's just gonna pull you out of here like forever, why flee? You know, right? You know, so yeah. I was like, "Run and on your way, I'll suck you up." <laughs> Beat me up, Scotty. Yeah, I just, I don't know. I don't know if it's just you know, it's so dispensational to me the whole rapture thing. You know, being taken off the planet. I just, and that's a good argument there, Tyrone. I mean, God told him to flee to the mountains. All right? Run. Why? We're going to get sucked up here. We're, you know, beat me up. I don't want to run. I'm not in that great shape to run. Just take me. <laughs> Norm says, David, so good. Hope this is just an appetizer. <laughs> Norm, you got too big an appetite. Mount Vesuvius eruption took many persecuting Romans too in 79 A.D. Okay, yep, but I think the text is not dealing with that. It's dealing with the Jews and the Jewish persecution because that was settled with the destruction of the city. Well, again, I try to stress that the majority of persecution was coming from the Jews. That's where the majority of persecution came from. There were others, of course, but that was the main persecution. Uh, I don't know who this is from. It's an excellent message today, Dave. One of the proof texts of futurists for expectations of a physical, bodily second coming is Acts 1.11. How would you respond to that? Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and I responded in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I dealt with Acts 1.11. You could also go to our Acts series, and I dealt with Acts 1.11 in the Acts series, too. Um, you know, it, it, that is not, you know, he left in a cloud. So he's coming back in a cloud. It's not a, a body of a man is coming back, floating down out of the sky. That's not what he's talking about. There's so much covenantal language in there that you have to get into the text and understand what's going on. But I dealt with that in First Thessalonians chapter 1. So you can go back 
and look at that there. You know, people, I don't, I, it's, I don't, it's kind of frustrating to have to say this, but we have a website, okay? And on the website, every message I've ever taught is on the website, okay? So whatever book, you know, people write me, what do you think about this text? I don't know. I'll have to look it up on my own site, so why don't you just go look it up, okay? So, you know, go to the website, go to the text, whatever book you want to look at, and it's there. And listen, if it's not there, I don't know, because I haven't studied it, okay? And I'm not going to give you an answer on something I haven't studied, because I'd just be guessing. So, but there's a lot on there. I don't know how many, how many messages we have up. Do you got any idea how many is up there? Well, here's the thing. You'll find, you'll find very little... I just click on just messages. You'll find over the 26 years, I think you won't find a whole lot of changes, okay, yeah, I straightened out, I smashed the earth down, made it flat, but, um, you know, and, we, and the divine council came in there, and of course there's been some other tweaks and changes, but not a whole lot, um, the ones we strongly disagree with, my afterlife series, I had Jeff take that down, because I'm like, get rid of that, you know, it's, it's messed up, okay, <laughs> Junior from Canada, thank you for your enthusiasm and passion in teaching, it stimulates and encourages us to stay strong. You know, it helped that they play the theme from Rocky as I'm coming up here. Okay, you know, but no, I, I just, how do you not get excited about this stuff? You know, how do you not? You know, it's just, John writes, if we're to worship God in spirit and truth, how do you view the importance of a correct eschatology regarding truth requirement above? Thank you, Pastor David. Amazing as always. I, you know, here's the bottom line, people. Truth matters. Because people ask me about eschatology. Why does it matter? Because truth matters. Okay? But people are wrong on a lot of things. That's not part of the gospel. We don't have to have everything straightened out to be saved. Listen, I'm, I take this a lot simpler than most people, but I think you have to understand that the Yeshua is God Almighty, and He has guaranteed you eternal life if you will trust in His work for you. That's it. Believe on the Lord, Yeshua the Christ, and you'll be saved. That's it. Not have all this straight, have all that straight, have your life straightened out, quit all the sins in your life, you know, do everything right. Stop going to movies, stop chewing tobacco, you know, all these things that people had. No, it's none of that. It's believe. Now, as a Christian, we're called to live holy lives. That's a separate issue. All right? Shouldn't be. But it is. But, you know, people get in, you know how many views there are in eschatology? I mean, at least four, okay, that I guess ours is the only one that's not orthodox, you know, because we just take the Bible literally and we shouldn't do that, okay? They turn the whole thing on its head. They take the time text figuratively and they take all the figurative language literally. Yeah. People in the chat asked about Rome. Yeah, okay. I got that. Yeah, I... That happened, okay? But again, I don't think that's what the text is talking about because he's talking about the sons of God being revealed. He's talking about dealing with the Jews. AD 70 was a huge... AD 70 is not just the destruction of a city, a temple. It's a change in covenants. And and there was a spiritual war going on and that war ended in AD 70. The gods who were fighting against God were destroyed. The stars will fall from heaven. That's not talking about 
balls of gas and light. It's talking about the, these other gods who are destroyed, who are fighting against God. That whole system was shut down. No more sacrifices. No more animals killed. No more Judaism. It's all done. No more priesthood. No more genealogy. It's finished. We moved into a new covenant. It's monumental. It's not just a city being destroyed. Yeah, I mean, go way back to the promises, you know, that were fulfilled in that. Rebellion. Moses said, fine, you bring your censors out, I'll bring my censors out, and God will show us who his Holy One is, you know? And you know, he talked about the revealing of the sons. The Jews thought they were the sons, you know? The, the, the exactly. Hebrew, or, or the you know, Jewish unbelievers, you know, thought they were the sons. And, and Christ said, you know, the sons are going to be revealed. And it's almost a similar fashion. They were destroyed, and God revealed... In the church, this is these are my real sons. That's you know? what we talked about that a couple weeks ago. The sons of God were made manifest. It's the Christians. It's not the Jews. It's those who believe in me. Now we got a question. Could it be that 70 A.D. was a shadow of the real thing to come? No, no, absolutely not. Where does the Bible talk about the real thing to come? Where does it talk about that? And if you go through, you know, go through the Tanakh and learn what God told Israel and how he, what He was going to do to Israel. Deuteronomy 28. Read the covenantal cursings. They're going to eat their own children. Then go read Josephus, what happened in AD 70. They ate their own children. This was a total fulfillment. God shut that thing down. What more are we looking for in the future? And again, show me a text of Scripture that says this is in the future. This is far off. This is not near. This is far. Okay? There's no text that way. All the texts are talking about something soon happening. We just have a hard time accepting it. Time defines nature. And since the time was first century, the nature was spiritual. Okay? You can look for a physical coming and a new earth and new all that stuff, and we don't need any of that, okay? We got the promises of the Lord, and they're fulfilled. 